We are almost completed with our series on salvation. We have one more week to go. This is what we've covered so far. We've covered quite a bit of stuff. We've taken your questions, which I'll actually address next week. We're going to respond to those. But we've looked at certain elements of salvation, like justification, regeneration, conversion, adoption, sanctification. Last week, we actually tackled head-on in probably our best discussion so far the two questions that most of you wanted to know about on your cards, which is, can we lose our salvation? And is there any assurance that we actually have salvation? Can we know for sure? Uh, and we had a very good discussion. Next week, I'm going to talk a little bit, after we answer your questions, about glorification, uh, something that is not often discussed in churches. We focus so much on the process of salvation, we never actually talk about what it might look like to have see the conclusion of it. I'm just going to summarize last week with one slide. It looks like this. We said, can you lose your salvation? We said, of course, that's been part of the debate for the last few centuries at least. Uh, Calvinists say, no, you can't because God has ordained it and will make it happen and you cannot thwart God's plan. The Arminian view is, of course, you can lose your salvation because you gained it by faith. It's a condition. And if you lose that faith, you lose that salvation. I want to stop there for just one second and say, if you were here last week or if you listened to last week's podcast, one thing I want to be very clear about is I presented two views. There are hundreds of views. I said last week that if any of these people were sitting in the back of the room, they'd be jumping up and down beside themselves, that the way I summarized their views was so elementary. And that's because I'm trying to condense hundreds and hundreds of pages of the way that they lay out these ideas into something that we're just going to digest here. What I was really trying to show is, People just disagree, and there's a lot of reasons why. We covered them last week. I won't go into them again. But I just want to be clear again, even a Calvinist that we said believes that God ordained salvation, there are some who believe that a condition might be faith. I mean, there is a disagreement even among Calvinists. There are some Calvinists that believe that God predestines who's going to be saved and predestined who he's going to damn. And there's other Calvinists that say, no, 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 that's not true. So there is no one monolithic view among any of these views. And as I said last week, there are many views in the middle. Even on the Armenian side, they believe that faith is the condition. But some Armenians are very, they have a great respect for the fact that we're sinful creatures and that we might not even be able to turn to God without help from God. They recognize that. So what I mean to say again is, I've made it very simple on a chart. It is anything but simple. I just want to make it so that we can at least answer the questions you asked. Consequently, when we say, can we know that you're saved, there's people who say, no, you can't. Not really. That's why there's an asterisk there. Not really. And there's people who say, can you know that you're saved? Yeah, sort of, unless you commit apostasy later. So we have different views is the real answer. I might end tonight by asking, does it really matter? So the image we are doing, and this is a confession I brought last week and I even reflected on further is, when we first thought of the idea of doing a series on salvation that looks a little bit behind the curtain, I felt kind of like, wow, that would be a fun series. <laughs> you know, kind of like this person just thinks, I think this is going to be like a fun trek up this rock until last week I showed that you get to this point at some period. And I just confess that to you. I wish you could look over my shoulder when I read these books. I wish that what we really did, rather than just talk about these subjects, is we just all decided to read six or seven books that I've been reading. Uh, because... There is so much beauty. I was talking to Lena today. I was, I was reading one of the books, and I just closed it, and I just went, wow. And she said, complicated? And I said, no, like, mind-blowing, but beautiful. I wish you could have read this person's argument and how they viewed God. It made you think of God in such magnificent terms, beyond even anything I had contemplated, how God's grandeur must be to even make salvation work. I wish you could just be peering over my shoulder. I'm doing a bad job of summarizing only because you don't want to be here for seven hours. Um, you'd rather we be here for 20 minutes. So let me try to see if I can move on to that. But that's how I feel when I'm reading. It's not just where we are in the series. That's kind of how I feel. Like barely able to grasp these concepts. It sounded like such a fun series until you get to the point where you realize, wow, there is so much here. So tonight what we're going to do is we're just going to look at two questions. And these are questions that I've heard from you repeatedly, not just on your cards, but you've come up afterwards and said, okay, but answer this. The first one is, does God really choose us for salvation? And the second one is very related to it. Is that choice? Is that choosing based on his foreknowledge? Is that how it works? So I'm going to address those with a little scripture to begin. And I want you to jump in. 
if you want a little bit more context or you want to see. But I know when we just read scripture, it's hard to disagree with scripture. But here's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to show you that the concept of God choosing is not random. It's not a theological determination that somebody made. It's not like somebody said, I would like to see it this way. What happened was people read some of the verses I'm going to read to you. And again, I've edited myself severely. I've only picked a few. There are hundreds that talk about how God chooses. You might even start in the Old Testament and see how God chooses a people to begin with. And that, that theme never stops. It keeps going. We're actually going to look at the choosing of a people tonight as well. But let me just show you a couple of verses. And here is what I want you to pay attention to. A lot of times when we hear that God chooses people, we get bummed. We think like, oh, that does, I don't like that. I want you to real, see how Paul describes choosing. He's always describing in terms of prayer, thanksgiving, gives you comfort. It's something we should look forward to that God chooses. So here are some of the verses to look at. 2 Thessalonians 2, 13 and 14. We ought always to do what? Give thanks to God for you, brothers and sisters, loved by the Lord, because God chose you as firstfruits to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. He called you through the gospel that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's excited that there's choosing going on. He's thanking God that God chooses. Look at 2 Timothy 1.9. He has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given to us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. He's choosing. Therefore, says 2 Timothy 2.10, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The reason I picked this one is because some of you have asked, if it's true that God has chosen people, in some views like Calvinism, he's chosen people from before time, why even engage in evangelism? Notice that Paul is saying, I'll, I go through everything, I endure everything for the sake of the elect even if he doesn't know who they are, even if we can't define that group, he wants them to obtain salvation. A lot of times, well, no, I'd say all the time, it's very hard to know who's elected, who's not, no matter what view you take. Paul's saying, I'll endure anything to bring the gospel to these people. So it shouldn't mute our evangelism efforts at all. 1 Thessalonians 1, 4 and 5 says, For we know, brothers and sisters loved by God, that he has chosen you. Because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and with deep conviction. How do I know you were chosen? Because you believed. Because the words that we brought to you were just not words. They turned into faith and the Spirit evident in the power in your life. So Paul is saying, yes, that's how I know. He has chosen you. How do we know he chose? Because you believed. Okay. These verses you should have memorized by now because we've seen them twice. Romans 8, 28 to 30. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. We always say that's the part we like. We'd like to end that verse there because that's about how much will fit on the plate in the bookstore. Right? That'll fit on a mug. But read it in context. He works for the good of those who love him. Who are those that he's working for? Those who have been called according to his purposes. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. The choosing seems very important. We looked at Ephesians. Ephesians 1, 4 to 6 and 11 to 12. For he chose us. In him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. How did he choose? What basis did he use to choose? In accordance with his pleasure and will. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will in order that we 
who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. Why were we chosen? For his pleasure and will. Why? So that we could be for the praise of his glory. Read these verses carefully. There's nothing about us in here. There's no response needed. That's what a strong Calvinist would say. That's the choosing verses that they would bring up. Just in case you're thinking, and you have your thinking cap on, think, seems like Paul's got all of this on his own. He's worked out all this theology. Is there anybody else who would agree? Well, Jesus might. Here's Matthew eleven twenty-seven. Jesus saying, All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. John 6.37 and verse 44 says, All those the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. No one can come to me unless the Father who sends me draws them. And I will raise them up on the last day. John 17.6-9. This is Jesus praying to the Father. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I am not praying for the world. Notice, he says this very clearly. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me for they are yours. Jesus, even in his prayer, makes a clear statement, says, I'm praying for the ones that you gave me. And I want to be clear that I'm not praying for everybody in the world. I'm praying for the ones you gave me. That troubles some of us to think, hmm. So even Jesus, in his prayer for the believers, is praying for a subset of all people. Yes? Does that one, does that one usually refer, though, to his disciples and his earthly ministry? I mean, I'm not trying to say that this throws out all the other verses. I'm not trying to do that. I'm just trying to say, doesn't this mostly apply to those people? I think it applies broader, and here's why. John 15, 16 applies more to the disciples where he says, basically, I'm paraphrasing, but John 15, 16 says, I chose you, you didn't choose me. But he is talking directly to the disciples in that part of, I would say, he's actually speaking to them directly. Here, I think it records a prayer of people that are given to him, and they're not just the disciples. In this context, I believe, and I'll double check, but I believe that this context really is a prayer for the future believers that are going to come, right, of all believers that will be there. And that's why this, I chose this one and not the other one, because I think that one could be taken, like you said, more for the disciples. I think we have both. But by the way, if that's the case, that's still God even choosing that. Even like decisions like whether you're going to follow me or not. We think Jesus says, come follow me. The disciples are like, okay. And it was somehow it's credited to them like they follow Jesus. He's saying, you didn't even choose me. I chose you. Even that action you think was a free action, it was something that I chose. Um, which, again, we're not that excited about sometimes. Last one here. When the Gentiles heard this from Acts 13.48, which is the gospel message... They were glad and honored the word of the Lord, and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. That last part would be a little bit curious to say that there are people who are appointed to eternal life. Those who are appointed believe. Those who were, you could say, predestined. Those are the verses on choosing that I like to point out. Okay. Struggle with those. Anyone like those? Anyone feel like, hey, that's the way I'd like it to be. I'd like it to be where I really am not an actor in this case. I mean, God just simply has chosen, and it just turned out this way. And really what I thought was something that I cognizantly did might turn out to be something that God, from the beginning of time, it says, chose me and didn't choose somebody else. This is what these verses seem to say. I'll give room. And certainly what Calvinists believe. Any comments? Yes? How do you know you've been chosen? I mean, it says, that last verse says, when the Gentiles heard this, that's all the Gentiles that heard it, honored the word of the Lord, plus those who were appointed of those few Gentiles believe. So all of them <coughs> honored the word of the Lord. So I could just be honoring the word of the Lord 
how is it that I know I'm chosen? That's exactly what a Calvinist would say, that you actually cannot know for sure uh, during your life. And I want to be clear, because Morgan pointed this out last week, and I think it was right, that even people who believe in strong choosing will say, you could look at the evidence in your life and the fruit in your life and think, you know, this is fruit that comes from the Spirit. It's fruit that comes from the believer. There is a good, reasonable chance that I really am a believer chosen and appointed to believe because these fruits are evident in my life. And I could go into a long list of what those might be, but let's not do that, okay? Because to answer your question directly, those people who are very honest to their tradition would say, but you really can't know for sure. You might be right. You may be following and honoring, but in actuality, until the day that you die and face God, there's a chance that you actually weren't appointed to salvation and weren't really a believer all along. And that, when I read that, <laughs> it shook me to my core. You know, and I, I confessed last week privately, I said I actually thought about calling Morgan <laughs> and saying, do you think I'm a believer? <laughs> uh, I, mean, no. I, I mean, is there a chance that like maybe I'm faking it? Like and I didn't know, but that would be the response. Anyone else want to push back? Yeah, Joseph. Um, and therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect. It seems like um, that they too may obtain salvation, that it might be that everyone is elect. Based, based on the wording in that verse. Could be. Could be. But I think a better reading is that he doesn't know who the elect are until they believe. He believes that that would show that they might be elect. Uh, and by the way, Paul is not weighing in on this perspective at this time. These are people now reflecting on what does Paul mean when he says, I'll do anything for the sake of the elect that they may too obtain salvation. Uh, just to be clear, people who believe in that perspective of choosing, strong choosing, like a strong Calvinist, think God still uses us to bring the gospel message to people, right? Because that is his way of communicating the gospel, but his grace will only change your heart and bring it to life in a way to accept it if you're one of those chosen. Yes. I don't understand the need for evangelism at all because it seems like this view is so that like God's sovereignty cannot be thwarted and you don't need me and there's no point in me spreading the gospel because no matter what, whether I spread it or not, whoever he chose is going to go to heaven and is going to be chosen. That is a very strong criticism that has been repeatedly raised to strong Calvinism, and I would say that it is not unfair. I will tell you that they push back and say, first of all, it's a commandment we must follow, regardless of whether we understand its purpose. It is a command. Uh, God uses it in ways we couldn't understand, and he is using our obedience in his sovereignty of working everything out. He is using that, so we need to be obedient. Uh, and we should never forget, we don't know who's elect and who is not. We should just do it all. But if you get behind all three of those reasons, yes, there's still that valid objection that you raised is something that just doesn't go away, constantly dogs that position. Yes? So my question is, um, like, where in the timeline is this? And maybe, maybe that's like more of the next thing, but like, is this post-garden? Is this post me choosing Israel? Like. Where does this fall in the like whole we get to be chosen? Because obviously, like, he had his chosen people, and like, we're all okay with that in some sense. Um, and then so, is Israel unchosen yeah. now that Christ has? Let me address Israel separately because we're actually going to look at a verses on that, okay? Um, this is probably the place where most debate takes place. Let me explain why. Almost everybody has to admit that God chooses. Because the verses are just too many to just say, I reject choosing entirely. There is a view that tends to minimize it, we'll look at briefly, called open theism, uh, because it has a hard time with time and choosing. But these verses are pretty clear, and there's many, many more. There's somebody who's compiled all the choosing passages from Old and New Testament, and I was just going to print it out and put it in the back, but I thought we'd just be wasting paper. I don't think anybody really wanted to look at them all. Um, there are, there's got to be more than 100 of them. I mean, they just go on and on and on, where when you read them and you just think, I'm just reading all the passages in the Scripture from Old to New Testament that deal with choosing, and I'd say I read probably two-thirds of them, just was just reading verse after verse after verse. The case is clear. Something is going on with choosing, but the question is the order. The question is when in the timeline. That's a very good question. That's where people will debate. And I'll discuss it a little bit in foreknowledge. 
because that's where people try to resolve it. Because it seems like we can't escape choosing, but then people say, okay, but I might be a little bit more comfortable if this. Okay, I'll take one more comment, then I'm gonna move on to the next passage, yes. Um, well, I mean, I think God does specifically choose some people for whatever his purposes are, but like, can you look at it like when he says, like those that God has given to me, or look at choosing kind of in a broader term, like how we're talking about the mutual submission within like the Trinity and like, could be like, God is like the people that want to choose, you know, God, God puts at the feet of Jesus, like I've given them to you, like in that kind of a way, as opposed to like, the ones I specifically decide would be saved, or that he chooses everyone, but we're not elect until we, I don't know, not consent, that's the wrong word. So you're right that those passages are very Trinitarian. That one passage from John 17, very Trinitarian, right? It matches Ephesians. Problem is if that verse was all it was, we just have too many other verses that are talking specifically about chosen, not just for use, but to salvation. And that's where we think, okay, so that fits the context of all these other verses. Let me show you how this can go. I'm going to actually look at Romans 9, verses 10 to 24. This passage, Paul is asking a question about what happened to Israel. Did it fail the plan that God had for Israel? Because it seems that it did not produce salvation. What happened is the question he's tackling in Romans 9. I want you to pay attention, though, to these same questions that you're struggling with, Paul anticipates and puts them in the text. Romans 9 is difficult. Uh, I've subtitled it, a set of verses you will really not like because you're a millennial. <laughs> you love the idea that you can choose your salvation and choose your God and choose your theology and all that is meaningless to God in some way. In some way. I'm not saying it's all meaningless. It's just that we in our current life have way overemphasized our role in our own salvation, our role in choosing God. Uh, and we've built all sorts of crazy ideas on that basis. Listen to what Paul says and hear the tension. He's talking about Jacob and Esau, who were both twins and had radically different outcomes to their life. It says this, Rebecca's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. Yet, before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand. Does that sound familiar? Like his pleasure and his goodwill, just because he wants to? Not by works, but by him who calls, him who chooses. She was told, the older will serve the younger, which of course in those days is completely backwards. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now, millennials, before you get all twisted out over God who hates, the actual way to understand that, of course, is in the Hebrew, you say, I loved this person more and I love this person less. We often translate that into love and hate but it really means to love more and to love less. You see that in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount a couple of times as well. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and he hardens whom he wants to harden. One of you, sitting right here today, he was anticipating this. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who is able to resist his will? But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, Why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? What if God... Although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, 
bore with great patience the objects of his wrath, prepared for destruction. What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory? Even us, whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. If you grasp Paul's argument here, he's basically saying, what if God created people that he knew were going to be destroyed and put up with them for his own purposes? And what if he did that with patience, even though they were prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known? You hate this passage? Anyone love it? Anyone think this is describing a God that's like truly a God beyond our comprehension and maybe even our notions of human fairness? Yes, Ben. I mean, is Paul actually trying to say that this is the way God is? Or is he trying to get across like this is the way we should respond to God or see God as this bigger, you know, greater thing than our own? I think it's both. There is an appeal to mystery here, which is, first of all, when he asks the question, he doesn't answer it. He just says, who are you? to even ask the question and speak this way to God. Um, I've seen a lot lately of people attempting to resolve this in different ways. And he's saying, there is an appeal here to some mystery, and you cannot say this even if you think. I've seen a lot of people writing books these days that try to say, if God is like this, like he would say, stop right there. Right? You are on dangerous grounds. You don't even have the right to say, that if the God is like this, right, or how can God be like this, you just may follow this pronouncement. But it's, I think it's unfair to stay there. He's actually, he doesn't have to go this far into the argument. In fact, this next, what if God choosing to do this is directly meant to finish answering the question. It's not meant just to say, don't ask. Although Paul repeatedly says like, who is God and who has been his counselor? And he does appeal to that at times. But he goes forward and actually says something that's quite stunning. Okay, let me give you some responses to this. One of the things we have to point out about Romans 9 is he is talking about nations and not people. He is talking about Israel. In fact, before, just a few verses before, in Romans 9, 6, and 7, he's actually making clear that not all of Israel is going to be saved. So even though he's making a point, by the way, Israel, let's be clear, is the descendants of Jacob. Right, so this whole discussion about Jacob and Esau, and he chose one, and he reversed the order of their birth, and he predestined this to happen, and he chose this that would happen, is because he's trying to say, in answer to the question, what happened to Israel? He's saying, first of all, God does what he does. A better understanding might be to see that he used Israel and Israel's repeated failure to bring about the Messiah and the church is what he's actually going to argue, that God has not failed. He knew this was going to happen. He was going to work through their repeated failure. And Paul also makes clear that not everybody in Israel is going to be saved, right? That choosing a people is not synonymous with saving them salvifically to eternal life. They're two different things. So in fairness, you could say, well, he's not talking about just choosing to salvation. He's talking about choosing one nation over another, Israel over Edom, which is Esau's descendants. But the principle is still there, and it's very clear. And a lot of scholars look at this and say, yes, you could distinguish it that way. But the fact that God could choose nations doesn't make me feel any more comfortable uh, that he chooses people. I think we could find a little bit more comfort that I don't think this is directly about salvation to eternal life. But it shows God's choosing to such a degree that somebody would say, what if he would go this far? You, who are you to say anything about that if he was going to do this? And many people say, that's exactly what he did. It's exactly what he's done. He has chosen some people to eternal life and some people not. Yes? Um, I mean, this is a really strong argument. I'm not even going to deny that. But like, you could raise that Pharaoh, meaning like I allowed him, even though he was going to have a hardened heart, and I knew he is disobedient to me and he would not choose me, whatever but I allowed him to come to power for my purposes. And I wanted someone to come to power that didn't want me so I could you know, do what I wanted to do. That's different than saying, I made it so that Pharaoh would never be able to be saved. And de I don't, that's just kind of different to me. I'm glad you brought up Pharaoh because I'll add one more critique of this, even these verses being used in this way. Pharaoh was hardened later in the story. 
So Pharaoh faced 10 plagues. And the plagues, some would say, were meant to get his attention and get him to repent and let the people go. And had he let the people go, maybe it all turned out differently. But the, in this story, his heart is hardened after that point. So Paul's point really is to speak in some degree to the character of God and in our ability, inability to question that. We can't just dismiss it the way I distinguished it too easily. I just want to say there are people who say, don't go too far with this. This is for a specific case. But it still gives us a glimpse of God. Abby. Okay, so my big issue is like understanding the character of God in lieu of this. Because like if he can just pull the God card, then like my view of him and his like unconditional love is way skewed by this. Because I don't see this as an unconditionally loving God. I see this as an unconditionally loving God for those who are elect, or like to his glorification, which seems like this whole idea of like conditional, which totally like blows out of the water like my previous view of him. And so I guess like in a sense is if he can do this, then how do I adjust my view of God's character to accommodate for this? And you better get it right before you go be a missionary because right. you know, you're gonna need to figure out who to speak to and who not to. Uh, let me be clear. I am using these verses to show one view, one majority view, which was the view of the church till about 1700s, right? I mean, more. Yes, their view and a Calvinist view would be that God is offering his atonement, his sacrifice to a limited few. He is not just offering it to everybody and hoping to see who comes. That, that our work, even in presenting the gospel, we don't know who's elect, but it is offered from God's perspective to a limited few. That is correct, and it would adjust your view of God. That's why it's so critiqued. So God doesn't but, love everybody? While well, some who go really far say, no, he does not love everyone. He loves only the ones he's chosen. He actually hates the others. That freaks everybody out. <laughs> that was the original formulation of Calvinism. Uh, I read Calvin's own work cited in one of the books I'm reading, where Calvin goes so far and says, God is the author of everything. He does not even permit sin. He actually controls it. And you think when you read that, you shriek back and you think, did you just say that God is the author of sin? I mean, that is blasphemy, right? But this is from John Calvin himself, not just some small figure in the church. So the extreme views everyone started to back away from. Right? So hyper-Calvin say, yes, he only loves a few and he hates everyone else. Others say, no, no, he loves everyone, but he's only saving a few. Others say, we can't know what he's doing. They're trying to back away even further. But yes, your view of God gets tweaked every time. That's why I'm actually going to go somewhere a little bit different to balance this in a moment. The Arminian view, which is their side, believe that to the degree that God chooses people, he's choosing the entire church, the you plural, and it is based on who ultimately accepts him. So his choosing is a wait and see. I don't know who's going to actually be in. But whoever actually gets in, those are the people I chose. Uh, I would say that's the weakest aspect of Arminianism because it's actually not really very well supported in Scripture. Okay, let me talk about foreknowledge for just a moment. Here's the question. Can foreknowledge make us feel more comfortable about God appearing to choose? These verses on choosing, which seem clear, God chooses. The question is, can we solve the thing we don't like by just saying that God foreknew everything we are going to do? Now, foreknowledge of God is such a large topic. And if I had more time, I would even just show you the magnificent view of how God is so infinitely omniscient just by this one example this person gave about how God must have thought about the creation before he created. It's so mind-blowing that I just, you know, I'm in awe. I'm not going to take up your time with it. Megan's very happy about that. She's like, yeah, just let's skip to the main point. Let me just show you that you're not alone in thinking that foreknowledge might be a part of the issue. I mean, 1 Peter 1, verses 1 and 2 says, he's writing to God's elect, those who are chosen, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. So there's a link right in Scripture that choosing is related very closely to God's foreknowledge. Again, in Romans 8, 29, it says, For those God foreknew, he also predestined. So even the idea of choosing and predestining an outcome is related to his foreknowledge. So here's how the common person has asked me this question afterwards on Sunday night. They've said, so let me get this straight. If God knew what everybody was going to choose ahead of time, 
Wouldn't that get us out of the problem? Because then God is choosing those people. He's choosing those people who he already knew what they were going to do. That's the question. I'm going to give you just a little bit of information on foreknowledge and then answer that question and then we're done. Just so you know where we are in the talk. Here are just a couple of views on foreknowledge so you know. Like, how does God even have foreknowledge? Just because your answer, Monique, is hard to give until you know that people don't even understand God's foreknowledge the same. One, we call simple foreknowledge. This is just the idea that God simply knows everything, including the future, just as part of his nature. We don't have to know how he knows it. It doesn't even matter. He just knows it. So God knows the future. He knows it perfectly. He knows everything. That's simple foreknowledge. And that's enough. That's all we need to know is God just knows. Other people think God is outside of time. They say God is outside the bounds of time, so he doesn't really foreknow anything. He just knows. He's at an eternal point of nowness. He's just always now. There's no before, after, and middle for God. No past, present, or future. Just, just now in God's place. This is a fairly common view in the church. Many people have adopted this and argue that this is how we understand God, not even foreknowing. He's only using words like that to us who are temporal, who are bound by time, trying to explain that God has always done this, but really, if we really need to understand it, God just exists. There's another concept called the concept of middle knowledge. These are all different views, by the way. They don't all stack on top of each other. This one says, God knew every possible outcome of every possible world that he could have created, including every possible decision of every free creature in every one of those possible worlds. And then he chose one possibility that best came up with his outcome that he wanted. This is the one that is the most mind-boggling. You think of God imagining an infinite number of worlds he could create with the infinite number of creatures that were going to live in every one of those worlds and the infinite number of decisions that every one of them was going to make. And I say infinite just because I mean many, because they are finite, just a number we could never calculate. And then from all those possible choices of billions and billions and billions of people and many, many trillions of decisions that every billions of people would have made, in all those worlds, he goes, I'll pick the one we now live in. This is the best. It would say the optimal one that accomplishes his goals but this is what's cool about this one. This one preserves our, our free will. Because he's looking at all the worlds and every decision everybody would have made and then saying, I'm picking this one because it gives me the best optimal result while actually letting all of the creatures make all the free decisions. Here's one more. The view of diminished foreknowledge. We also call this openness theism or open theism, you might have heard. This one says that God settles and knows what he wants to settle. He only knows what he wants to know about the future and remains open about what he wishes to leave open. God does not know the future possibilities or the contingencies, especially human choices, except in the rare case that they're settled, in cases where he wants them to be known, like a prophecy. But in everything else, he's open and he remains open to give us our free will. And of course, there's the one we've been talking about, the Calvinistic view, which is just that God knows because he's going to make it happen. Uh, his foreknowing is just literally a control that comes from his omnipotence. He's just going to say, this is how it's going to be. And we see verses in scripture that says, I will bring it about. So that is not like it's without scriptural support. There's that view. Question. Is diminished foreknowledge kind of like a, I don't want to say cop out, but if you're going to say that God doesn't foreknow and he's just along for the ride like us, then you can't, then it's like, what do you do with the gift of prophecy? Because you touched upon that because I was going to ask you that. Then what, what of the gift of prophecy or God allowing us to know things before or etc. Okay, in fairness to open theism, the gift of prophecy would be a situation where God chooses to settle the future. So they don't say that God is not omniscient. That he is, they don't say that he's not all-knowing. They say he is all-knowing, but... What they say is the content of what he wants to know has been determined by him to be a smaller subset. He chooses not to know certain things so that we have our creaturely free will. Let me, let me just make a couple quick comments. I, this is, I, you know, I don't want to overwhelm you, which I already have. <laughs> you, you, these were your questions, too. <laughs> I mean, you wrote them on the card. I'm just trying to answer them. I think the open theism one is difficult in this context Open theism was mostly uh, a response to the problem of suffering and evil. It is mostly a response to some ideas about human free will and, and our agency in that. Um, 
it runs into real troubles when you deal with choosing because they have to actually say that God doesn't choose because if he doesn't know the future but he chooses at random, that would make him a worse God than they could imagine. So they actually say that there really isn't any choosing, which is kind of contrary to a lot of the choosing verses. I'm going to leave it there. I actually would say we can talk about open theism offline. It's, to me, it's a solution looking for a problem because there's so many better ways to explain it, especially in this area. Um, simple foreknowledge is somewhat closer to the Arminian view. God just knows everything. He knows what you're going to choose. A lot of us like that. A lot of us just like to know God just knows what we're going to choose. And he just kind of, because he knows that, he saves those who are going to choose him anyway. That's the, the way we like to formulate it. And then the other two are saying, the foreknowledge outside of time is close to that. He just knows because he just knows. He always knows. And the middle knowledge is kind of the one that's in between. It says, no, God is still using a sovereignty. He's just picking between all the free choices that could possibly be and say, I'll go with this one before he creates. How does that matter to your life? <laughs> It only matters this way, because you guys keep asking this question, isn't God's foreknowledge the answer? Let me just give you the last slide and give you how I see them. Of course there's gonna be people who say no or yes. Here's the specific question. Is God's choosing based on the foreknowledge of our decision? Isn't that what it happens? And some people say no, here's why. If God's decision in election is based on foreknowledge of your action, it would not be based on unmerited grace. This is what a Calvinist would say. But it would be based on the foreknowledge of what you would do. If God is simply foreseeing what you will do, then salvation is not a work of God. Our salvation then becomes a work of ourselves because he's just seeing what we would do, what we would choose. Now this is a point I do agree with, this next point. I really do think that Calvinists have a point when they say, our heart is simply too sinful to ever turn to God on our own. Even for our salvation, even for something as desperately needed as saving ourselves, we are so sinful that we, on our own, are not just freely choosing God. Without him working in us first, we could not get salvation. They would say what God foresees, God ordains. He makes it happen. That's how they see it. And I think we should pause there for a moment because this does touch our heart. I think a lot of us do actually believe that we are good enough. Oh, yeah, we sin. But we are good enough that we could turn to a holy God and find our way to salvation just by using our brains. And I think we should just pause while I don't agree with the Calvinist formulation. I think the one point that keeps coming back to me is how flippant we are with how sinful we are. They do have a point here to say, you know, it is virtually impossible for us in our state of sin to ever reach out that hand first to God. He's got to have reached out first. They call this view monergism because it means God acts alone. God is the only actor. He changes your heart. He calls you to the gospel. He does everything. Your response is not part of the formula. Bad news for missionaries, I know. You guys might be out of business if this were the right view, wouldn't you? No, 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 you still have to, because you don't know who the elect are, you're still supposed to go out there. You know, there's elect in Tunisia, you just don't know who they are. <laughs> Here's the other view, which I think we should take equally seriously. This is not just the Armenian view, there's many others who take this view, and in fact, it's kind of a hybrid. Some Armenians wouldn't even agree with this completely. Yes, you could say, yes, God's decision is based on foreknowledge. He would say this, God foreknows the believer's faith. That's what he's talking about when he says, I foreknow you. I know what you're going to do. I know if you're going to believe. Salvation is still solely from God, even if we must act to receive it. Without God's action first, there is nothing to receive. So it still is from God, because he's acting first, and acting mostly, we would say. Our job is just to say, I receive it in faith. Faith is not a form of works that earns anything or credits anything to us. So in answer to the Calvinist view, they're saying, just because I have faith or I accept the gift, that's not works. I'm not earning my salvation. I'm just receiving what God has done. It is merely accepting the gift offered, citing Romans 4, 4 and 5. There are repeated verses affirming human freedom and cooperation, our willingness just to be saved and to get salvation. So the other side would say, yeah, we understand that we're too sinful, but we're not earning our salvation just by receiving it. Receiving is something that is a condition of getting salvation. You're just supposed to reach out and grab it. 
we call this view synergism because you have to have two people acting, God reaching down and you just wanting to be rescued and reaching up. Okay? Those are two different views. Anybody, now you want to push back on foreknowledge? Yes. So ultimately, should we figure out which side we're on and should we be fully one or the other? And uh, I mean, obviously it's, it seems challenging and it seems like there are parts to each that work. And I'm just wondering like, in the life of a mature Christian, like, is that ultimately what we're called to do is just know like, you know, kind of line item by line item, like which side we believe in, like, okay, we're good, we're solid. Because it, it seems so much less like tidy than that. And it's kind of challenging me to figure out like, how should we kind of end? Like, what should we sort of come away with? Because it's, I, I don't know. And I know that's kind of a, a, a broad question. Like our view it's, it's not at all. That's exactly where I'm about to go next. Here's some concluding comments to help you through this material. I said that salvation sounds like a very easy topic unless you've read the scriptures. Okay, so most of us, frankly, let's be real, we don't read the scriptures. And if we do, we don't read them with a lens of I'm going to read all the verses on salvation and try to understand them. We just kind of read bits and pieces at a time and if we see this or we see that, we just read it in that one chapter we're reading. Salvation is a very beautifully intricate thing and it's very simple, though, unless you've read the scriptures. Then you encounter things that you go, oh, what do I do with Romans 9? What do I do with Ephesians 1? What do I do with Romans 8? What do I do with those things? Okay. All right. That's number one. Number two, Calvinism is easy to poke fun at unless you actually read all of their writings. When you realize that there's a reason that the church from Augustine to Luther to John Calvin and down adopted this view for a long, long time, we realized that our view of God changed. The view of God in the Old Testament, the New Testament, and for a thousand years afterwards didn't have any issues with this. I'm not saying that's right just because they didn't. I'm saying that we changed and then we started looking for all sorts of new fancy theologies. I don't subscribe to Calvinism. But I will tell you, it's easy to throw rocks at it until you read it and you read it in its maturity and you start to realize Oh, there is a lot here that's totally true. It is too easy to just reduce salvation to God just offers it to every single person the way that they do in some settings, and then it's up to me to decide what to do. That just seems a little too simple. So point two, some of the things I've been pushing for, even though I don't subscribe to them, I would say easy to dismiss. Third point, what do we do about somebody like the thief on the cross? Which brings me to like where Megan was going. What did he understand about any of this before he turned to Christ and said, Lord, like I believe you're who you say you are. And Jesus assures him that that day he'll be with him in paradise. What do we do about that? Was Jesus supposed to say, too bad, you didn't work out that whole Arminianism, Calvinism, choosing foreknowledge thing. I mean, you don't even have a clue who I am. No, not at all. And I want to be very clear because I feel like the questions you asked were deep questions that required these answers because you have been around Christ for most of your life. And you are more than accustomed to understanding yourself as being somebody who's saved. And yet it was surprising how many questions we had about salvation. And you're going to see next week, there's still some we haven't covered. I'm going to try to move through them in rapid fire. But there were so many questions coming from a group of people who I would say would characterize themselves as, yeah, saved. So it is a good question to ask. What are we supposed to do with this? What did he do with this? And I would say nothing, and nor was he required to. I want to be very, very clear that for most everyone that we run into who does not know the Lord, they do not need to know these things to find salvation. Right? I I see that very clearly. I want to be very clear about that. The reason we're doing this kind of thing and thinking about these things is, number one, if you've never thought about them, you don't understand the full grandeur of God until you dive into his plan for salvation. I said at the beginning of this series that if God is about one thing, I mean, he's about many things, but if you could reduce God to one thing that he's about, it would be about salvation. And if you think that an infinite God with all these characteristics could be about just the simple bumper sticker idea of what he was doing, this is central to what God created. He created with a plan of salvation already in mind. He had it all worked out. So it's got to be something that's beyond just the simple here, like come down to the field and accept, but it begins there. 
And for most of us, that's good if we find and help people to come to that point in our life. I want to be clear. I don't want to miss that at all. But for us who dig a little bit deeper, there's only two reasons. One is because you really want to start to understand God in all his glory. It's kind of like trying to understand the Trinity. We'll never get to the ends of it. But the exercise is so fruitful because you start to have an appreciation for a God is so beyond us. I think it's the same with salvation. And the second reason is because when you do stumble across those passages and you do start to struggle with how you view God, and it does ultimately change the God that you have. If you resolve some of these things, and I don't say that you're going to have to come out on one side or another, but the struggle itself, God begins to grow even bigger just even thinking about how these people, all these smart people who get paid all this money sit around in universities and seminaries to debate this stuff, must be doing it because it's inexhaustible what they're dealing with. And we get a glimpse of that. I actually think it brings us to a place of praise and worship. It's not often that you can think your way into praise and worship. I will tell you that reading some of these books has done exactly that. That, you know, you start to marvel. I know some people like to say, God, the universe is this big, and all the things that God created, that brings you to worship. I mean, that's one way to do it. I'll tell you another way is read a couple of these books and just think of what a God would do to do this. Last thing I'm going to say is my own recommendation, by the way, is a view that we have not presented. There is a view that is really well placed between Calvinism and Arminianism and all their shades. That's called Mullenism. And it is really takes the best of both and holds them in tension uh, in, a, in a really remarkable way. Uh, I may, if we have a little bit of time, just give you a quick chart next week of what Mullenism might look like and how it takes really strong verses that support Calvinism and also balances them with things that we all like, like our freedom that come from other places in scripture. You know, so it tries to do both. It tries to you know, hold on to scripture very tightly and also please millennials, okay? Let's pray and close up. Thank you for that, putting up with that tonight. Uh, even though those were your questions we're trying to answer, uh, I, hope that, I hope you hear that it really is meant to bring us to worship and not just boring uh, material. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would be glorified in not only our minds and our hearts, but that you would be glorified in our life. Maybe just a glimpse of who you really are, if we could just scratch the surface of that, would bring us to our knees, would bring us to a place where we'd want to change our entire life to live in you the way that you have portrayed in Scripture. And maybe throughout all of these things that we're seeing, we would marvel first and foremost and thank you on our knees that we are saved. By whatever means, even if we don't understand it, that is a wonderful work that you've done, whether it's complex or simple. And Lord, that we would then take that charge and change our entire life and want to do everything in obedience to you as a result of realizing how great you are and that you chose us. And third, that we would then take that, Lord, to reach every single other person in our life with the most important news we have. Lord, renew our heart for the gospel, for the good news, for the importance that it brings, for the life that it is. Pray this in your name. Amen.